help us learn about ourselves. I think that's how we learn is through stories. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am excited to be joined by Stephanie Lansom, author of the Living Water series and her newest historical novel, In a Far-Off Land. Uh, I would love to set that story. It's so timeless. Even for people who don't know the Bible, they can still, anybody can grasp that idea of someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness, getting it anyway. Stephanie Lansom writes historical fiction for women about women, Her newest novel, In a Far-Off Land, is a story of murder, romance, and mercy set in the glamorous era of 1930s Hollywood. She is also the author of the Living Water series, which are biblically authentic stories of women transformed by encounters with Jesus. Lansom makes her home in Minnesota, but she loves to travel. When not writing historical fiction, she enjoys gardening, cooking, volunteering at church, and dreaming about her next adventure. Well, I, I was most intrigued with the setting of your novel. Um, it's set in Hollywood in the 1930s, and there's so much to draw from with Prohibition and the Depression era. I'm curious what it was like for you to do the research, not really what research you did, but what was it like to dive into that era? And also, what was it like for you to then bring it to life on the page? Yeah, it is a really fascinating era. And Part of what I found surprising was how little um, historical fiction is out there set in 1930s. I don't know if the depression was just so depressing um, that it's hard to set a story there or if people aren't interested in that era or what, but I just loved it. And the problem I found was deciding where to stop and what not to include because you know, there are so many fascinating aspects. There's like these social um, issues going on with women. There's prohibition, which is just a a huge story in itself. Um, You know, the economic side of the Great Depression is really complicated and far more complicated than I, than I, I thought I knew why the depression happened, but I didn't. So that was all new to me and very interesting. And then there was that um, very, dark time in Los Angeles of Mexican repatriation, which I think many people aren't aware of. So I took some of the things that I thought were least known, and those are the ones that I really wanted to include and worked it into the story of this this story as much as I could at least. So yeah, there's a lot there. It's a great it's a great historical time period. I have to admit I was not aware of Mexican repatriation. Can you Tell us a little bit more about it and then your, I guess, craft strategy for how you included it in the novel. 
Yeah. So in the 1920s, um, when California was really like having its boom time, um, there's a lot of industry going on in, on there. There was a lot. The Hollywood was just starting out. The film industry was starting, so it wasn't a really big thing. But farming was huge. Um, the railroads were really big. They were building all the ro- railroads out to California and putting in this infrastructure there. And at the time, they didn't have enough people there to fill all the jobs. So industry in California advertised in Mexico and said, we need workers. So they actually imported Mexican workers up to California to work for them. And they promised them housing and good wage and everything. And for a while that worked and a lot of Mexicans came up and established themselves in California. In fact, I mean, we all know that a lot of them actually already lived in California. Like it was part of Mexico for a long time. but then the, the depression happened and all of a sudden our unemployment rate skyrocketed to what, 30%? I mean, it was just ridiculous. And what happened? It was everybody said, hey, why are these people taking our jobs? They aren't real, they aren't real Americans. And so there was this huge push politically and socially to send the Mexicans back. And a lot of these people lived there. They'd lived there for 20 or 30 years. They'd had children there. These, these children were young adults and they were American citizens. And yet our, the government, especially the, the city government of Los Angeles, um, really pushed to send them back across the border. And they weren't subtle about it. They put them on buses and trains and said, get out and don't come back or you're going to be arrested. So it was, it was really... a it was a dark time that people probably don't want to remember, um, but there's a lot of documentation of some, you know, terrible things that happened there and things that we see now. Even there was um, a lot of newspaper articles that kind of sensationalized crimes by Mexicans, kind of painted them with a, you know, made them look scary, made people afraid, um, all to get support behind sending them back to the borders so that. American people could have the jobs. Um, So that was months of research and going down that rabbit hole. Um, And how to how to work it into the story was was difficult at first. And then I decided to put in a family that was faced with this, a family who a Mexican family who'd lived in California for 20 or 30 years. They were established there, but they were afraid like very afraid that whatever they did, they were going to be, if, you know, if they did one thing wrong, if they got in trouble at all, if they lost their jobs, if they couldn't make their rent, they were going to be put on a train back to Mexico um, or separated, which was another thing that happened is a lot of families were separated at those times, in those times, like the parents were sent back and the kids were left. Um, So that's kind of where I worked in. And I have a whole um, point of view character who is dealing with that at the same time as the story is going on. Well, I, I applaud you for putting it in the novel. Like I said, I had never heard of it and I study history. I work in a high school that teaches U.S. history and it's, I've never come across it. And so I think you know, that, I mean, really shows the value of historical fiction and, and exposing people to, to things like this that have happened, unfortunately, throughout history. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it's really wonderful to see that you've got it in there as tragic as it was. Right. And, you know, kind of interesting to see how 
attitudes haven't changed over the years. Yeah. You know, it's important for us to, to bring out some of those things that have happened in the past and say, you know, we haven't really got a whole lot better, have we, in some ways? Yeah, it's definitely definitely hard to say. Now let's move on to your main character, Minerva Sinclair. I love her name. Uh, you'll have to tell me how you came up with that. Uh, and, and then I'm, I'm also interested in, so she comes from Odessa, Texas, but the uh, she moves to Hollywood. And can you talk about some of the stark differences between Depression era Hollywood and and Depression era Odessa? Sure. So it's it's South Dakota. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, that's okay. Um, there is an Odessa, South Dakota. It's a small town not far from Pierre, which is the um, capital of South Dakota. And um, I wanted to put her in the Midwest because there was a lot of really interesting things going on with farms during um, the early days of the Great Depression with the bank closures, um, the farms being foreclosed on, and how people really, um, you know, stuck together. They helped each other out. I'm sure, I'm sure there were situations where communities didn't help each other out, but most of my research really showed that in the Midwest, a lot of farmers, you know, really stuck their neck out for other, other for others, their fellow farmers, and they worked together to get through the depression. Um, not so in Hollywood is kind of where I was showing this juxtaposition of attitudes. Um, and so she runs away from Odessa because of the farms being foreclosed on. She, at the time, Hollywood is this, you know this wonderland, I would say, of, of riches and opportunity, um, movies and women could make a lot of money. Um, there was a lot of stars coming out. There was the news. It was kind of a new thing, this idea of celebrity. And, um, so she thought, well, I could do that and I could, you know, save the farm basically. Um, but she gets there and finds out that it's nothing like it's nothing like small town Odessa and people really aren't going to help her. Like she's, she's on her own. And so that's, that was kind of the difference between the depression, you know, and it's kind of a big city versus small town too. So she finds out that it's not as, as a golden opportunity that she thought it was going to be and ends up in pretty dire circumstance circumstances. So she's, she's searching for the, the glamor of Hollywood and that you brought in a lot of that uh, with film film stars. Um, tell me about your research into the film stars uh, of that time period. And I mean, did you watch old movies? Uh, or were you familiar with some of these film stars before researching the book? Um, somewhat, yeah. I would say that I've I I was kind of a film buff to start with. I like old movies. Most of my experiences in the '40s and '50s, though, I think most people you know, my age probably grew up with some Westerns and, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart and some Cary Grant and all of that. But this was going back a little further um, to that time period where, where we went from silent films to talkies. And it was an interesting time because the technology was in Hollywood. It was just, you know, just racing ahead of itself. 
Um, and it seems like every time somebody turned around, there was something new, either in picture or sound. So it's kind of like the, the, the great, you know, dot-com age, in, but back in the 20s. Um, so I would call my research into 1930s Hollywood a series of rabbit holes. And that's why it took a long time to write this book, because there's so much you can you can read about. And I, the stars were very fascinating. There was a lot of um, scandal, tons of just bad behavior. Um, Charlie Chaplin, um, the Charlie Chaplin alone, I probably spent a couple of weeks just reading about him because he was so fascinating. Um, and then there was a lot of like mysterious murders and police corruption going on. And this was all tied in with the studio system because it was all about money. And that's where all the crime really comes. I mean, what they say, crime is usually has, there's two reasons for a murder or a crime and it's sex or money. Um, and that was pretty much Hollywood, sex and money. Um, so yeah, so the research was very fun. I did watch a lot of movies. Um, I gotta say that was a nice change from my previous books, which was were set in ancient uh, Israel, which the research is a little more difficult for that one. Um, but watched a lot of movies. I read a lot of biographies of the of the stars just to kind of get the feel of what things were like in those days, um, and get that lingo. There's a whole lingo of the '30s that I enjoyed learning. And I, I I wrote some of them down. Uh, <laughs> It it is very um, enjoyable to come across some of that language. I wrote down the cat's pajamas, bourgeois, and heebie-jeebies. So that yeah. those were, I mean, you you came across those in the films. I did. I I take notes during the films and and write them down. And you just find a lot of good dialogue and like, oh, I gotta I gotta use that word. And also in um, you know, in some of the written accounts too, people just talk like that it's like oh man I want to talk like that I want us to go back to that kind of talk wouldn't that be fun <laughs> yeah. you uh, mentioned the the idea of celebrity first coming into vogue and Minerva certainly is after that and I kind of thought of today with social media and influencers do you think the two periods relate in any way I think so I think that we're always searching ever since we ever since film came around and probably even before that there's been that that search for celebrity fame and fortune probably more the fortune that comes along with fame um and we've also just seen like how destructive it can be you know to just be so focused on that and we saw, I saw a lot of that in my research. Like so many of those film stars, they would make it big and they were miserable mm -hmm. you know, to a certain extent. Um, they had you know, broken marriages and all kinds of family issues and uh, substance abuse was just rampant. Even, I mean, prohibition didn't help that in any way. Um, but substance abuse in Hollywood in the 30s was... Yeah, you know, excessive, not just alcohol, but drugs and everything that we have now was available then and even less controlled. So yeah, I think there is a lot to, to learn from looking back on that and drawing some parallels between what we see now with celebrity too. Just how quickly you can rise and fall 
just like now. You also talked about bad behavior. And I found one thing very that was startling was the difference in gender roles and uh, treatment of men versus women. Can you talk about how that's portrayed in your novel and, and just what it was like during that, that time period in that place? Yeah. So we're coming out of the 20s. And, you know, that was 100 years ago now, which is kind of hard to it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around that. It's like the twenties was a hundred years ago and it was a time of, of very conflicting messages for women. Um, there was one message that said, you know, independence and shorten your skirts and cut your hair and you know, drink, um, women before the twenties really weren't allowed in, in bars or taverns. Like that was just not done, but, prohibition and well the 20s really started this whole thing of like if if men can drink illegally then hey why can't women drink illegally um so there was this party atmosphere for women and they were given this a little bit more freedom and yet also they were still held accountable and to a higher standard than so many men so it was it was really conflicting for men for women and the 30s probably tamped that back a little bit because of the depression. Women were put more into more traditional roles, but still lots of conflict, lots of, um, of unfairness when it came to what women were expected to be and do. Um, so Mina really runs into a lot of that also. On the other hand, women in Hollywood sometimes had really, powerful roles like Luella Parsons, the gossip columnist. She could, she had, she had more power than most men in Hollywood. Um, a lot of the, of the female stars had, had power, but it was pretty unusual. Um, and there was a lot of, I would say, male dominated favors going on in order for women to gain that power. Yeah. It's just another one of those issues that you, you hope we've come a long way, but it's, it's hard to, t to tell sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's like two steps forward and one step back. So the, the major theme of your novel seems to to be centered around a parable in the Bible, the, the prodigal son. For listeners who aren't familiar, can you tell us what the parable is and what inspired you to recreate that story? Yeah. Well, I originally, my first three books, my first um, three novels with Simon & Schuster are biblical novels. And when I was doing those, I was, you know, reading these parables that Jesus would tell and he would tried it, you know, he got his point across in stories. And this particular story I've always loved because as I was doing my research, it's a very common story that was told in those days of a son who took his inheritance and went and squandered it. And, um, you know, he did everything wrong. And then he came back to his father and his father said, no, like get out of my sight. Like, you've done everything wrong. So Jesus is telling the story, except that he turns it around and says, instead, the father welcomed the, the son back. 
and gave him a feast. And so everybody was like, what? That's not how this story goes. And that's kind of why I liked it, because it was just so surprising for those that time period that someone who'd done wrong could possibly be forgiven, you know, and shown mercy. And I thought, I would love to set that story. It's so timeless, even for people who don't know the Bible or, you know, aren't Christian, they can still, anybody can grasp that idea of, you know, someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness, getting it anyway, and, you know, getting a second chance. I think that's what we would call it just in a secular way is like just a second chance of someone who really screwed up, but they get to try again. Um, So that's kind of what I wanted to write that story about is second chances and you know, she gets, she pretty much does everything wrong. I mean, Lena just makes bad decisions for whatever reason. I mean, every character has their reasons for bad decisions. Um, but I just love that idea of her coming back then. She wanted to come back with everything and show them all that she could be a success. And instead, you know, spoilers, she comes back with nothing. And what happens then? So that's kind of the story I wanted to tell. And if people don't know the parable, that's fine. I mean, you know, it's still a good story. Yeah, it's it's a it's a powerful story, a powerful message, and it has a way of of humanizing your character because I think we all go through that with the best of intentions, but then we we screw up along the way. <laughs> yeah, it's like human. It's just human nature. It's a story of humanity. So I, I read that you were inspired to write the novel on a trip to Monterey. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your trip to Monterey? And I'm also curious about your reading of Steinbeck to to kind of oh, get yeah. into that time period. Yeah. Well, I think they kind of went together. I was going to Monterey. I think it was an anniversary trip. And it was quite a while ago now because um, this story sat in the back of my head for a really long time. And so I, uh, I got there and we were, you know, doing a little, I, we always do a little sightseeing and reading up about the famous people that live there. And there's a whole lot about Steinbeck um, in Monterey. And just that whole idea of the canneries and the, the way labor was exploited just kind of made me start thinking about, you know, that it would be a good place to set a story about this girl that I had in the back of my head. And so, yeah, there's just so much going on in California during the thirties that we don't realize. So just inspired me. And then I had a dream about this girl running from a mansion in a green dress and being picked up by at a truck. I don't know. I mean, I know that's weird to have a dream, but sometimes you just need that little spark to start your story. It's like, Oh yeah, that's a great start for that story. So we got, yeah, I usually just get a, a first line in my head, even if it's not the first line that ends up in the novel. Right. That's kind of what gets me started. But yeah, it's very interesting to hear you say a dream. I think a lot of writers out there will hope they can be inspired by a dream and remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I wish I didn't dream as much. I'd have a lot of books out there if I could write a book for every interesting yeah. dream I had. So. Uh, I, I also read that you, through historical fiction, you, you want um, readers to come to the story through the magic of, of storytelling, and that you want them to learn something about themselves. 
How does historical fiction accomplish that, do you think? Well, I, I'm not sure about historical fiction in, you know, specifically, but I think story can really help us learn about ourselves. I think that's how we learn is through stories. Um, and in this one, I think it's more of who you see yourself and, you know, who you identify with. You know, in this one, you've got, you know, Minerva who's making all these mistakes with a good heart. Like she's trying, but she just keeps making bad decisions. Um, and then you've got Oscar who is very concerned with justice. And we, we all know people who, you know, it's like, that's just not right. And they're, they're just very concerned with justice instead of mercy. Um, and then you've got like the older sister and a lot of people identify with somebody like that. Who's like, Hey, I've done everything right. And she really messed up. And yet nobody's get patting me on the back. <laughs> so I think we do kind of learn from, from, from stories by picking out the character that we identify with the most and saying, why do, why do I like this person? Why do I understand them the best? Um, at least that's how I read, read fiction. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, and, I, and I never really picked up on that, but sometimes so, a, a character just strikes you as so familiar and then you start to kind of look deeper into why that is. Uh, tell me more about your travel research. Um, is it something you do for every novel? Um, every time you travel, are you looking for something that might inspire you? Um, do you do research trips? Uh, I just do trips. I just love to travel and have always since I was a teenager. Um, I've been lucky enough to go a lot of places. Um, and I think... You know, I, I don't know if I've ever done a specific trip for travel because my first three novels were set in, um, you know, Israel. I've never been there, but I have been to a lot of places that gave me some inspiration when it came to ancient cultures. I've been to Greece. I've been to Morocco. Um, you know, I've been to places where you find that just real, that, that real old feeling in the streets. And, um, and I think that just helps you to picture something and describe it from, from travel. So I would say that, that I'm, I'm, I kind of think that, that it goes the other way around, that instead of traveling for, for writing, I think my writing grew out of the fact that I traveled. Um, and I wanted to describe places and maybe let other people see the world through my eyes, even if they don't get a chance to go to California or Israel or any of those you know, places, hopefully that I'll write about in the future. Um, I think historical fiction is kind of like that. It's armchair traveling. Definitely. Um, you know, it brings a time period and, and the place right. to life. I haven't asked you anything about your process and I'm always a little curious how every writer works. So, you know, from from the inspiration to starting your writing all the way through to publication, what is your process like? Well, it depends on if I'm if I have a contract or not. I've found that um, if I'm writing like this book in a far off land at the time, I didn't have it sold to anyone, so I took my time. Um, I wasn't in any rush. I did a lot of I did a lot of drafts. I did a lot of 
tinkering. Um, and so there was an entirely different process than let's say like the second and third novels of, of my, of my series where they were already under contract and I started out with a, with a deadline. And so then I really sit down and I'm serious and I make an outline and I follow it and I try to stick with it and not go down all those little rabbit holes that we all know are so enticing when we get on the internet. Um, so yeah, I think it depends just on my time frame. And I certainly love tinkering and taking my time, but practically speaking, I don't get to do that as much as I'd like. Do you have a an office space? Do you like to write in coffee shops, uh, morning, evening? I, I'm a morning person. I'm very much a morning person. And so I try to get up early. And actually, I was up at 4.30 this morning. So sometimes I can't help it. Um, and I just get up and get as much writing in as I can in the morning before things get busy around my house. But yeah, I have a nice office and I I have a couple bird feeders out my window that I can stare at when I get stuck. And um, I'd say it's a nice little writing space. I love to get out and go to coffee shops and I really like to go to the library because there's so few distractions in the library. You can really just sit down for a couple hours, but um, can't do that right now. And that's been, I'm so ready to have the libraries open again. Yeah, definitely. I, I love to find a little cubby in the back corner somewhere mm-hmm. and kind of get lost in, in your own mind. Yeah. And the Stillwater Library is beautiful and it's very quiet and I, I miss it. That's funny you say that because I met the Stillwater Librarian a uh, couple of weeks ago. We, she was in the same running group. Oh, yeah? Which one? Uh, I mean, who's was, your, what's your name? It was a female. Uh, I don't remember her name. Now you're putting oh, okay. me on the spot. But yeah, I just <laughs> met her the once, and oh yeah, and it was right at the. It's it was the same time as National Library Week. Oh yeah. Nice. Well, they're all great. All Definitely. of the Stillwater librarians are fantastic. Well, you you've mentioned your series a couple times, the Living Water series. Uh, so tell us more about it. Yeah, that's that's more of a. Um, it's more of a Christian fiction series, biblical fiction. It's about women in the Bible that normally don't really have, don't get a lot of, you know, column space, I would say, um, that we might not know their names, but they're mentioned, so then they meet Jesus. So I just wanted to really look into their stories and and write about them and how they are changed by this encounter that they had with Jesus. And I really enjoyed writing those books. Those were my first books and I never really intended to be uh, an author. Like I really didn't think I'd ever get anywhere. And then I had this series contracted with Howard Books, which is part of Simon & Schuster. And it was like, it was just like a a shock to tell you the truth and jumping in headfirst into the, into the world of writing. Yeah, that's, uh, really creative uh i think and you you did kind of the same with the story of the prodigal son kind of looking at a different perspective that a story that hasn't been told um so i think that's fascinating that that you're able to do that with your living water series yeah i enjoyed it a lot so what are you working on next well i (laughs) speaking of deadlines um 
I've got another book coming out with Tyndale Publishing. So they're the, they're the publisher for In a Far Off Land. Um, and this one is also set in 1930s Hollywood. Um, a little less of the film side of Hollywood and more in it's it's really interesting I'm not sure if you know about this era in 1930s also but fascism was becoming quite a thing even well before um, World War II so America was becoming more and more divided and um concerned with, I would say, um, social concerns like fascism versus communism. And not very many people know, but in, in, in California, there were a lot of Nazi groups starting up very early in the 30s, like right after Hitler was elected chancellor in 1933. He started sending um, emissaries over to California to start really building a fascist community here. And only one person knew about it, and it was this Jewish lawyer named Leon Lewis. Um, and he couldn't get anybody to listen to him. Like he knew that Hitler was going to be a real threat. It was almost like he was a prophet. But as most prophets, no one was really concerned about him. There was other things they were concerned about, namely the Depression. Um, so he set up his own spy network to infiltrate these Nazi groups and start gathering information on them and trying to like break them up and make sure that they didn't gain enough, any more power than they already had. So that's what this, this story is set in. And it's like, oh, I love researching it, but man, it's an unwieldy and very intricate story. I'll have to say, so we'll see how it comes out. Yeah, it sounds like quite a challenge, but I'm I'm sure in the end it will be worth it just hearing you talk about it. I'm already excited to read the story. Well, if you're interested, the, the nonfiction book that I took it from is called Hitler in Los Angeles, and it was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. And I just picked it up randomly one day and started to look at it, and I'm like, I didn't know this. This is fascinating. So I highly recommend it. Well, yeah, I will, I will check that out. Well, I've been talking with Stephanie Lansom, author of the novel In a Far-Off Land. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been fun to talk to you. Okay, so I'll, I'll start the interview, and, I, and yeah, I, I do have some set questions, but I might go off of those just okay. as, as we talk. But I'm going to do one thing first. I forgot to unplug my refrigerator, and it just started humming. Uh-oh. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Give me just a second.